Well, it all worked out really well. I uh, was excited about asking you all to just uh, mention some things that the Lord had spoken to you about uh, through First Peter 3, and we got to do that. And then I also wanted to say the, how thankful I was uh, to the Farinellas and to the Sheck Snyders, and we got to do that too. So we got to cover some of those uh, early bases, things I wanted to make sure that we, we did. And um, it sure has been a, a wonderful time. Part of what we've enjoyed so much, what my wife and I have enjoyed, above and beyond the cool restaurants we've gone to and getting to see big, beautiful pine trees and the water and all of that has been getting better acquainted with all of you. We really have enjoyed that a, a whole bunch. And I, I don't know about you, but when we're hearing those kinds of testimonies, what, what, is such a, what rejoices my heart so much and makes me so thankful is that God gave us his word. Because, you know, we go through life and we fear and we struggle and we're trying to figure out what his expectations are of us. And it's not that any one person or one marriage is perfect, has it all figured out, and that one person can stand up and say, yeah, I've got the perfect marriage, so here's the 10 things I've done that all the rest of you need to do. It just doesn't work that way. Instead, we all need God's help, need his grace, and it's his word that gives us direction uh, for how to have the kind of marriage that he wants us to have. So what's such a blessing to me is to know that, that any couple who's here at any time, you know, it, I, I couldn't be more thrilled for you to have future marriage retreats, but you don't have to wait till next February for there to be some time that you as a husband and as a wife that you would crack open God's word for yourself, the two of you, go out on a date together, eat some good food, come back to your house, and, and Look at a passage of scripture that has something to do with marriage. You could go to Ephesians 5, a whole bunch of other places that we're not even going to have the chance to turn to. And a husband and a wife could open up Bible study tools and for themselves figure out what a passage of scripture says about marriage and talk about it yourselves. It's wonderful to have a setting like this where we get to all get together, but uh, we all have access to the same word of God and even with your own marriage relationship, I'd, I'd urge you and encourage you, not just once a year, but, but as often as the Holy Spirit would lead you, that, that you take some time to look at God's Word and recalibrate yourself, remind yourself of what marriage can be. And we all need that reminder from God's Word. Okay? So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2. I'm excited to wrap our time together up with God's very first mention of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And that really is as important as it sounds. I mean, if it's the very first time, kind of the foundational, basic time that God references marriage, then it, it, it must be significant, and it is. It, it's really significant. I think you all would see that, that Genesis 2 in this verse that we're going to read here in verse 24 here in just a second is probably one of the most common, most well-recognized verses on marriage. In fact, maybe it's possible in, in good independent Baptist churches that it might be the most common preached message at a wedding, right? Where that uh, it gives this overall picture of God's beautiful design for marriage. And so you can picture that the preacher standing there before uh, the bride and the groom and talking to them all about what God has designed for marriage according to Genesis 2.24. That seems to me to be the most common setting in which that we're going to hear this verse talked about. But if you think about it, that groom and that bride are standing there staring at each other, all googly-eyed, all excited about their wedding day and all of what's in store for them and the days to come and the life to come. And probably they are paying very little attention to what the preacher is saying. 
Or as we, as Brother Farinella even already talked about, that that preacher can be saying the most wise and wonderful and godly things out of Genesis 2, trying to help that couple on their wedding day to grasp all of what's before them, but really they have no clue. And none of us has any clue as to all of what God's going to have in store for us, both the ups and the downs that are there. So Genesis 2, as wonderful as it is, as, as this beautiful, uh, romantic, big picture, profound perspective of God's view of marriage is also intended to be lived out in very specific and very practical ways. And that's what I think is going to be the best way for us to, to close things down is to look at, again, a verse that many of you could quote but to actually take the time to look at it in more specific detail and say, what does this look like if I do this today, tomorrow, next week? What is it going to look like in marriage for me to actually actually live this out? Now, you'd be familiar, Genesis chapter 2 here, God creates Adam, and God creates Eve, and God gives Eve to Adam. And it's a beautiful picture, and uh, it's wonderful what God's done. He recognizes it's not good for the man to be alone. All of us as men would say amen to that. He gives Eve to Adam. It's this beautiful picture. It's all wonderful. But when you come down to verse 24, then it's as though that God says there's something about this perfect design of me creating Adam and creating Eve and putting them together that's supposed to provide a a lesson or a template, or as we're going to talk about, a blueprint, a, a blueprint for what marriage is supposed to look like. And that brings us then to Genesis 2 and verse 24. The Bible says, therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Okay, I don't want to be weird, but it's a short verse. Why don't you all read it out loud with me? You want to do that? Okay, so Genesis 2, 24, let's read it together. Therefore, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Okay, very good. So God here gives his blueprint for marriage, and it's a simple three-step plan. Now, I, we, we didn't uh, do any audio-visual stuff, no PowerPoints, and we could have visualized this all in different ways, but instead it's been, it's been way more awesome to see everybody doing stuff like this. i got a whole new set of signals for you. Is everybody ready? Okay. <laughs> all right. So according to God's design for marriage, it's that you have a husband and a wife who leave and they cleave, and then they become one flesh. And just because it's got a rhyme, it's the word weave. Okay? So leave, cleave, and weave. That's God's blueprint for marriage. Okay? So let me pray with you, and then we're going to get into Genesis 2.24. Lord, thank you so much uh, for the wonderful time that we've had together. It truly has been such a joy. And I thank you, Lord, for your word. And it's the applying of your word to our lives that gives us a wonderful life. And I pray, God, that as we look at this verse that I know you gave to us uh, to, to provide that blueprint for marriage, I'm asking, Lord, that as we look at it, we would realize just how wonderful of a gift that you have in store for us and that you'd help us uh, to follow what you want for us in our individual marriages. And, Lord, it would be my prayer. It's so encouraging uh, to hear people reference how your word spoke to them Uh, But Lord, we have a tendency to be hearers of the word, but not doers. And especially, Lord, when we're doing something that we're so accustomed to do, doing like like the, the rut or the routine that marriage can be. And because we're so used to interacting in certain ways 
and so used to living life in certain ways, it can take a lot to bump us out of our rut and out of our routine. But your word can do that, Lord. And I'm, I'm asking that uh, what you've accomplished in these couple of days would extend well beyond these couple of days and that your Holy Spirit would just continue to remind us of what is possible in marriage and how it is possible for us to live that life. So again, Lord, please use your word to help us, help us to be responsive in Jesus' name. Amen. To me, blueprints are really fascinating things. The fact that you can have an architect who conceives a building in his mind before it ever exists. Isn't that amazing? A thought that an architect can, can create a building in his mind before that building ever exists. Mm-hmm. Take what he's created in, in his mind and, and draw it out as a representation for people to look at. So a person can look at a blueprint and say, well, this is not a building yet, but it's, it's a building in prospect. It can, it can be a building and it's a small representation of what can be a building. And then builders who follow in after that architect can look at a well-designed blueprint and know it is not yet a building if they're simply willing to follow the instructions of the architect, the design that he had in store then the builders will produce a building that is exactly what the architect envisioned. To me, that's so fascinating that a building can be in the mind of a person, a person draws that blueprint for others to see, then other individuals can build based off of that blueprint and create something that was in the mind of a person. It's fascinating. And how that, that a blueprint can provide a representation of something before it even exists. A person can take a blueprint and create, they can build a life-size representation of what was on paper. That's amazing. And what I would suggest to you is that, that, that it would be possible, let me say this, it would be possible for there to be an architect that's not a good architect. And that you may have some builders who are very experienced and they look at some blueprints and say, okay, well, this person, they may have meant really well. They may have been really artistic when they tried to design this building, but this won't actually work. And, and the builders might know better than the architect and they could take the blueprint that was given to them and they might tweak it, redesign it. And as they actually go about building the building, they might build something better than what the architect had in mind. That, that could happen in everyday life. Um, when it comes to building a building, but that can't possibly happen when it comes to God's blueprint or God's design for marriage. As, as we find it here in Genesis 2, God's simple blueprint, it's like right from the very outset, God created Adam, God created Eve, he gave them to each other, and you can tell that Genesis 2.24 is not about Adam and Eve, because it says, therefore shall a man leave father and mother. Well, Adam didn't have father or mother. So it's revealing that God's saying there's something about the fact that I created this man and I created this woman and I gave them to each other that's that's meant to be a a pattern, a blueprint of all other marriages that come after that. And that's what he says here in in Genesis 2.24. This is God's design. This is God's blueprint for marriage. So inasmuch as any man and any woman will apply They'll build a marriage according to God's blueprint in Genesis 2.24. Think about this. This is amazing to me. That a husband and wife can build a life-size representation of what was imagined in the mind of God. 
that a marriage could be. Isn't that incredible? I mean, I understand that God is eternal. He sees the end from the beginning, but God created the first man and the first woman. He created Adam and Eve, gave them to each other. And then in Genesis 2.24, he gives us this blueprint. And it was in the mind of God, all that marriage could be. And he gave it to us here. And God can see before any of us ever live it, what is possible for us to have in marriage if we're willing to follow his blueprint. But listen, this, this really has to be clear to us in our minds that inasmuch as we choose to build a marriage according to God's blueprint, then we will end up with a marriage that is everything that God intended for it to be. But unlike, listen, unlike in the everyday architect builder relationship where you might have a builder who understands better than an architect and can improve on the architect's design, there is not one of us who knows better than God what a marriage is supposed to be like. So just like you could have builders who try to cut corners or who try to do things their own way and they end up with something different than what the architect designed, something different than what the architect intended, I would suggest to you that in any way that we as husband and wife violate, change God's plans, try to do it our way instead, we'll, we'll end up having built something, but it will be something different than what God intended. We, we can't possibly improve on God's design. And again, Genesis 2, I believe, is intended to be so foundational, being all the way right here at the beginning of Scripture. I, I can tell you, I haven't been in ministry nearly as long as Brother Farinella, and I, I haven't been as married as long as many of you have been. But I can sincerely say that in all the marriages I've got to work with, couples I've got to work with, and even in my wife's and, and, and our marriage, I have never seen a problem in marriage that didn't eventually come down to one of these three steps. Leave, cleave, and weave. That every problem in every marriage ultimately comes down to a leaving problem, a cleaving problem, or a weaving problem. And that shows us just how basic, how clear, how straightforward that God intended for his blueprint to be. When we build it his way, it works. When we violate it and try to do it our own way, it doesn't work. So how about we take the time then just to think through God's three-step plan for building a marriage according to his design. The first of those steps that you see there, it says at the beginning of verse 24, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. The key word there is that word leave. It's a, it's a strong action word. The idea behind the word is to, is to forcibly remove someone, that, oneself, from a situation that's holding on to you. It's like to push away in order to leave something behind. And the text says, therefore shall a man leave father and mother. Okay? Therefore shall a man leave father and mother. That that's, that's how a marriage relationship initiates. And again, that just makes transcendent social sense, doesn't it? I mean, if you think about it, how, how do marriages just happen? Well, you've got some beautiful, wonderful lady minding her own business, living with her family, living her life, doing her thing. And you've got some knuckleheaded guy who's like living his life, doing his thing. And he sees this beautiful woman and says, hmm, this is worth leaving for. This is worth leaving father and mother because rather than continuing to live with my parents, I'd rather live with that lady. And as he makes the decision to leave, then he tries to convince her to be willing to leave. And the marriage relationship then happens as a result of those steps that, that a man chooses to leave, a woman chooses to follow, and the relationship continues on from there. So that, that reinforces a point that's 
important for us to understand here from this first step of leave. As though it says, therefore shall a man leave father and mother. It's not as though that the man is the only one who has a responsibility to leave. Okay, I mean, even today and even back in Bible times, it's not as though that the man left father and mother and he went and joined himself to his wife and her family and everybody lived together, right? I mean, even back then, that's not how it happened. And today, it's for sure not (laughs) ideal for that to ever happen. It's not as though that the man leaves father and mother, but she stays with father and mother. No, it's that they both leave father and mother. But that natural design, listen, is that a man leads in the leaving. It's that he's the one with whom, in whom God put that desire for that relationship. And he says, I'm willing to leave what uh, the home that I have known, the place where I've lived, the things that I've been attached to, and I really want to be attached to you instead. And he, again, in his best efforts to woo and draw that woman, tries to convince her to be willing to leave as well. So it's not that... The husband is the only one who does leaving in order for there to be a good marriage. It's that both the husband and the wife must leave, but it's that the husband leads in the leaving. Okay? Now, another thing that's important for us to understand in order for this to be practical for us, 6,000 years later, roughly, since when this, the, the time frame that this text is describing, it's important for us to understand that the leaving that a a man might do or that a woman might do might not necessarily be father and mother, okay? Because in the time at which this text was written, as Moses was inspired by God to write this and describing the social uh, approach of God's people at that time, it was the tendency of a man and of a woman to live with their separate families until they got married. So it would be that even if a man was 35 or 40 before he got married, when it was time for him to get married, he was going to physically leave the abode, the home of his father and mother, and that's how he was going to initiate that marriage relationship and that new home, is he was going to leave father and mother in order to initiate that relationship. But we live in a different world today, don't we? Where there's so many broken homes and people who uh, are many years past adulthood or into adulthood before they get married. So you can have somebody who left home at 18, went to college for four years, got into a career for four or five years after that, and then eventually they meet somebody. So by the time that that person is getting married, the leaving that they're doing is not leaving father and mother. It's not that they're leaving the address of their parents in order to initiate a relationship. That doesn't mean however, that there's not still leaving that has to take place. Because what what God is telling us here is that it's the tendency of each of these two people to be intertwined in something. Again, in their day, it was father and mother, but every man, every woman prior to marriage must be intertwined in some life separately that they're living. But God understands, listen, God understands that for us to try to remain intertwined And all of those things that we had prior to marriage produces a marriage that looks more like this, right? Because if each one separately says, well, I want to be married to you. I want to enjoy all the benefits of being married, but I still want to live like a single person in this way. And I still want to have all my attachments to this. And so we're going to try to live together. We're going to try to make your marriage work, but we're going to hang on to everything that we had previously. Then again, as they try to have this, It doesn't end up looking like this. It looks like this instead. 
because they're trying to be close, but they're not willing to leave, which is God's very first step in the blueprint for having the marriage that he designed. Now, I'm going to tell another newlywed story on my wife and me. Um, and it's roughly that same time frame. It's, it's rough first few months, okay, uh, that we were married as God was teaching us a lot of these principles, sometimes the hard way. I remember, again, that um, we got married uh, when I was halfway through the year of grad school that I did at Heartland. So I uh, was in, in that year of grad school from August to May. We got married in December, halfway through. Well, we had both graduated from Heartland, from the undergraduate program at Heartland the previous May. And after we graduated in, in May, then I traveled with Glory Bound, the men's quartet that's uh, from Heartland, traveled with that group, and then started the grad school. So I traveled out for the summer, then came to Oklahoma City and uh, started into that. Anna went back home to her home church. She's from Lighthouse Baptist Church in Indianapolis. Brother Dan Titt is her pastor. She's got a wonderful home church. Uh, her dad's a businessman. They have a well-established home. She went back to the place that she was uh, staying beforehand and taught at her home church's Christian school. So in that eight-month period between when we both graduated from Heartland and when we got married, we only saw each other twice. It was awful. It was miserable. Okay. And we would have thought, okay, all we need to do is we just got to get married. If we'll just get married, everything will be great. And she'll move down from Indianapolis, come down to Oklahoma City. We'll finally be together. We'll be married and everything will be wonderful. But the problem was, is that a relocation of address did not necessarily mean that either one of us had left anything. So we got an apartment and we're now living together. But I remember very distinctly uh, coming home, uh, I think it was on a Saturday, pretty sure. I worked at a bank. She worked at the church at Southwest Baptist Church as a secretary. And I came home on a Saturday. She'd been home that day. And she was still in, in her clothes that she had started out the day in. Blinds are still down. Didn't look like much had happened in the house or anything like that. And I, of course, had this active full day of work already. And I come in and she's on the phone. Okay. Now, that may not seem significant. I... But it was significant because the moment I walked in, I knew who she was on the phone with. She was on the phone with her mother. I knew it. You know how I knew it? Because she called her mother multiple times a day. And her mother called her multiple times a day. And I walk in and it was my turn to give her the death stare. I'm looking at her and she knew that I knew and I knew that she knew that she was talking on the phone with her mother yet again. And it didn't look like that how stuff had been done up to my high expectations. And dinner was not ready yet, though I had just come home from work. And so I stare at her as I walk by and she's just. But again, I also knew that she knew that she was talking to her mom. Because of the response that she gave me in return, again, acting like, oh, there's nothing going on. But as soon as I walk into our room to change out of the banking clothes I was wearing into more casual clothes and come out, suddenly she's off the phone and she's working on dinner. And so I knew she'd gotten busted. She had that I got busted look on on her face. So I'm standing there. I'm irritated. And uh, she's trying to act like that everything is perfectly fine. She doesn't want to talk about it. So she's starting to prepare dinner. And I'm wanting to be irritated and fight. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just got it in you. It's like, let's, let's just fight. Let's just, I'm ready. Let's, let's, we're going to talk this out. And I'm sitting there irritated, but at the same time, I'm distracted. Because while she's standing there, and I think that she's making dinner, she's got a pair of scissors, and she's cutting into this box that apparently is part of a dinner that evening. And, and I get making dinner. I get using a box for dinner. 
I don't understand why we're cutting the box. What, what does that have anything to do with dinner? So I'm trying to be irritated here, and I'm asking her, so, so who, who are you talking to? Oh, I was talking to my mother. And again, we're, we're you know, it's, it's ready. It's the pre-squab. You know what I'm talking about? It's like the pre-squab. And, but I'm so distracted that finally I just can't take it anymore. And I say, what are you doing? And she says, I'm making dinner. No, 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 no. What are you doing? You're cutting the box. She says, oh, I'm cutting box tops. Box tops? What are box tops? Says, oh, they're these little things that you cut out, and if, you're, if you send them in, then they give money to a school. Okay, so you cut out box tops, they give money to a school. What school are you, and as I'm saying that, it's coming to my mind. She taught at her home church's Christian school the previous semester before we had gotten married in the fall. And so I went ahead and asked the question, whose school are these box tops going for? And she said, oh, it's, it's going to the school back at Lighthouse. I said, oh, oh, okay. So when you go to the store, does every box have box tops on it? No, no, just certain, certain items have box tops on it. I said, oh, so when you go to the store, are you looking for boxes that have box tops on it? <laughs> yes, yeah, because I want to cut out the box tops and send them back to the Christian school. I said, so hang on a second. Here we are, we're married we're a newlywed couple. You're supposed to be loving on me and making me the stuff that I like to eat. And you're going through the store and you're not thinking about what does my husband like to eat. You're going through and looking for boxes that have box tops on them. What's the deal here? And so we, uh, I think, kind of just left it at that for that moment, had dinner, and then we went and sat down on the couch. And that's when I think that we both had enough time to think through the scenario, to really be mad, but also be better spoken on what the issue really was, okay? So we sat down on the couch, and I proceeded, as I mentioned that I did on, on Valentine's Day 16 years ago, that I proceeded to let her have it. I, I was frustrated. So we're here in Oklahoma City, and we're members at Southwest Baptist Church. We're not members at your home church. We live here. We don't live with your parents. You're supposed to be loving on me and caring for me, and you're talking to your mom all the time, and you're so consumed with what's going on there. And, and I was just letting her have it for all of these ways in which that she was here, but she wasn't really here and she hadn't really left home. I wasn't even thinking about this. It was like, it's like you haven't even left Indianapolis. Everything about your life is like you're still there in Indianapolis. And she said something that stuck with me to this very day. She looked at me and she said, give me a reason to leave. That's what she said. Give me a reason to be here. Just, just give me a reason to leave what I had there. Now, she didn't go through the whole list, but I'm thinking about it. She had dad with good job, good money, mom who loved on her, room she got to live in, Christian school she loved working at, home church people she'd known for a long time. And the only thing that brought her to Oklahoma City was trying to be married to me and obey what she knew that God wanted her to do. And she looked me in the eye and she said, give me a reason to leave. And I understood what she's saying. I had all of this. Why should I leave all of that in order to be here with you? And what it revealed in my own heart that I had to be honest about is that she was right. I was doing the grad school in a year. I was working a full-time job, but even with what spare time I had left, I had all these single friends that I enjoyed hanging out with. I had a whole separate lifestyle that I enjoyed. When we were together, I was distracted. I was text messaging. I was doing this. I was doing that. She had very little of my attention. It was not uncommon. This, I look back in shame. 
Lord, help me. I look back and realize that there were a number of times where that she would have had the expectation that I was going to come home for the evening after I got done at work. And I would just text message or call her and say, hey, I'm going to go hang out with some of the guys tonight. And so I'll be home later. And she would have found out like at six that I was not coming home at 630. And I went and did my own thing. (laughs) So she was perfectly justified to say, give me a reason to leave. If you're telling me that I'm supposed to be here and be doing this, then it's your responsibility to lead in the leaving. And what I would like to believe is that God helped us both to understand that for then. But no marriage ever gets to just say, oh, we've now finally left everything. And it's always going to be perfect. And it's always going to be awesome because it's the nature of us as selfish human beings to reverse God's process. He, he wants it to be interwoven like this. But it's in us, in our selfishness, to want to leave and cleave and go back to the things that we used to do selfishly or that our our lives are interested in separately. And it may be possible that a newlywed couple uh, could struggle with all of these things, but it's also possible that a couple that's been married for 30 years can struggle with these things. Because it may not be mom and dad. You know, it may not be that there's a wife who's calling mom four times a day, every day, and consumed with what's happening there. But it could be, even that many years later, and an attachment to one's family. It may be that a husband could still be attached to a single life, but it could be that it's his hobby, or that it's his work, or whatever it is that he's intertwined with. And though he's trying to live with his wife, that the relationship looks more like this, because neither one is willing to let go of the things that exist in competition with the marriage. Because again, Anna having a right relationship with her mom was not the problem. Any more than me still having a friendship with some of these single guys was the problem. It's what in those things needed to be let go of. What did we need to leave from those things that existed in competition with us having the marriage that God wanted us to have? So it's not that, that having other interests in life is bad. It's that if you hold on to those interests, even though it's in competition with a good marriage, that's what's bad. And you'll find that your relationship will be full of strife if you're not willing to leave and let go of those things that God wants you to let go of. So I even want you to to think in your own heart and say right now in your marriage relationship, however long you've been married, just you don't have to answer out loud. You don't have to write it down. Just think in your own mind. What is it that I could be attached to Television series, video game, website, interest, hobby, something that's keeping me and my spouse from having the marriage that God wants us to have. It keeps us from having good time together. It keeps us from being able to have the marriage God wants us to have. No one is going to violate God's blueprint and have a marriage as God designed or intended. And we're going to perpetually be in a state of acknowledging our selfish tendencies to be entwined with things that are in competition with our marriage. We have to be willing to identify them. Very first step, identify them and be willing to leave them behind. Now, it would be really sad if all of God's design for marriage was leaving, right? Like we had to live in a vacuum. It's like suck everything enjoyable out of your life. Here, there's marriage. Right? It'd be really awful if marriage was all about you have to give up everything that you enjoy or everything that exists in competition with the marriage and there's nothing to replace it, no benefits to get in return. If, if God's plan for a marriage was a one-step leave plan, that'd be a big bummer. There wouldn't be anything all that exciting about marriage whatsoever, but it, it, God's blueprint and his design doesn't end with just that first step. 
He says, therefore shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife. And that word cleave is just as strong of an action word as the word leave is. That just as leave means to pull away from something that's trying to hold on to you. This is funny. It's awesome to me. To cleave means to hang on to something that's trying to get away from you. That's the idea. Leave means try to get away from something that's trying to hold on to you. Cleave means hold on to something that's trying to get away from you. That's the idea. And, you know, we may not use this word cleave as much anymore, but the idea that is intended by the word is like an embrace to, to, to grab onto someone and to hold on to that person. Uh, the, the closest thing I can think of today is like a, a bear hug. Like not just any, just any old regular hug, like a real honest to goodness tight grip, firm, hold, tight bear hug. And I love, I love the picture that is provided here in this word cleave because, and I want you to think about this for a second. A hug is by necessity, by design, of necessity, a hug is selfless. A, a good hug, a not awkward hug is selfless. Okay, because if you think about it, you can have two individuals that will just stand there and, and look at each other and if both of them stand there and look at each other and say, you hug me. No, you hug me. No, you hug me. No, you hug me first. No, you hug me. Then no hug is ever going to take place. You may have two individuals that stand next to each other. But what a hug requires is that this individual has to say, I want to put my arms around this individual. And this person says, I'm going to put my arms around this individual. And that's a successful hug. Because at church or family reunions, then there can be other types of hugs that are really awkward, right? Because if you have one person that wants to hug and you have another person who does not want to hug, then it it makes things really awkward because one person is desiring to embrace the other individual and is other-centered. They're thinking about that person and how they're going to provide a hug for that person. If the other person's not doing the same thing, then no successful hug has taken place. So again, it's not that God is saying... Therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife as though that the man is the only one who has the responsibility to cleave. A successful marriage is not one in which you have a man who's left everything and who's cleaving to his wife, but she's still hanging on to stuff over here. So the man leads in the leaving and he leads in the cleaving, but the wife has a responsibility to cleave as well. And, and that successful hug in marriage, that successful embrace happens when you have a wife who sees the needs of her husband and who says, I'm going to hang on tight to what he needs and I'm going to think about him and I'm going to embrace him and all of who he is at the same time that the, that the husband would say, here's my wife, here's the wife that God has given to me. I'm going to be focused on her. I'm going to wrap my arms around her and her needs and pay attention to her. A, a hug is automatically interdependent and selfless if it's going to work. So that's why God's picture here is so great. That, that the second step after a couple makes a decision to leave father and mother, to leave whatever is keeping them separate from each other, then what is next is for them to make the decision to be centered on the other person. It's take the same interest, the same passion that you had in your separate interest and take that same passion and now devote it to that person that you have been given, that spouse that God has given to you. The same interest that was applied here, it's now time to apply it here in in the marriage relationship, okay? Now, what's interesting is that a hug 
as in the meeting of needs, is not the same thing for a man as what it is for a woman. Right? I mean, and I'm not, I, I'm talking about, yeah, sure, a physical hug. I'm more talking about the meeting the needs of our spouse. If, if you're going to cleave to the needs of your spouse, then a wife has to look at her husband and say, I'm going to meet his needs. I, I'm not going to say, no, you hug me. You meet my needs. You care for me. You love me. And him stand over here and say, no, you meet my needs. No, you meet my needs. No, you hug me. No, you hug me. No hug ever takes place. It's when the wife says, I'm going to pay attention to the needs of my husband. The husband says, I'm going to pay attention to the needs of my wife. And they get so lost in caring for the needs of the other that everybody's needs get met. But it's not because they said, I'm going to meet my needs. It's because they said, I'm going to meet your needs. And it's not because I'm going to meet my needs. It's because I'm going to meet your needs. Okay, so I think you're with me now. But, but you got to think about for a second how different that a man's need, needs in marriage are from a woman's needs in marriage. There's a book that's entitled His Needs, Her Needs, Building an Affair-Proof Marriage. And I'd really depend upon Brother Farinella as your pastor to either recommend or not recommend that book. I just more want to give credit, okay? I just more want to, as anything, give credit uh, that this is where this came from. But this author of this book, he searched through Scripture and looked at men in the Bible and women in the Bible and the relationships that they had to identify, even according to Scripture and the way God designed men and women, to identify what are the top five needs that a man has in marriage and what are the top five needs that a woman has in marriage. And this may not surprise you, but the five needs he identified for the men and the five needs he identified for the women, none of them are in common. None of them are in common. But I want to give them to you right now. You could jot these down, some of you that are taking notes. This to me, I mean, it's just a book. It's not, it's not the Bible. The guy observed these principles from the Bible. But I think these are so good. Okay, here, here's the needs that he identified that a man has in the marriage relationship. The first is sexual fulfillment. The desire for sexual fulfillment in the marriage relationship. Two is recreational companionship. It's the idea that the wife likes to do what the husband likes to do. That the husband can be involved in recreation, but that his wife is his companion in his recreation. That she enjoys what he enjoys, whether they enjoy doing it together or she at least enjoys talking to him about it, that she is his recreational companion. Okay. Third is an attractive spouse. That a husband desires to have a spouse that he believes to be attractive. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that that husband has to say that my spouse is attractive to everybody else, but it's important that the spouse be attractive to him. That he would say, I have a wife who I find to be attractive. The fourth is domestic support. If the husband is going to go and do all of these things outside of the home, a need that he has and a desire that he would have in the marriage is, is my wife taking care of the things in the home environment. The fifth is admiration. Husband likes to have his ego stroked. He likes to know that he's the best thing since sliced bread. He, he wants to know that his wife thinks that he's pretty special, that he's pretty awesome. So sexual fulfillment, recreational companionship, an attractive spouse, domestic support, and admiration. I've talked to a lot of men along the way and asked them about this list. Now, I don't know about you. I think it's a pretty solid list. In fact, as I've asked men along the way, there's been joking around, but I, I've asked and said, can you think of anything that really matters to you in marriage that isn't provided through one of those five things? 
And there's times where a husband might say this or that or the other. Well, then I'll say, okay, that's good. No, you're right. That is something we might desire. Which of these would you replace and say, I don't need that one. I'd rather have this one instead. Very rarely does that come up because it's more, I mean, I could add maybe other things, but these would be the most important five. And most husbands would say, if these five needs were, were being met, everything else would just take care of itself. These are the needs that are most important to me. What about for the wife? Again, no needs in common. Her needs first would be affection. The expression of affection. The second one is conversation. She wants to talk and she wants you to listen and she wants you to talk back in return. It's this conversing thing that she just really likes. She's designed to need it. Okay. Third one is honesty and openness. She wants to sense and know. It's not that her husband can't be involved in some work that he can't necessarily talk about at home. It's as much as he can be honest, is he being honest? Can I sense that my husband is transparent with me, that he's open with me, that he's honest with me, he's not hiding anything from me, that what he is in other places, he is at home, that he's not hiding anything. A a wife wants to know that her husband is honest and open. Fourth is financial security. The thought is, if she's going to provide the domestic support, is he going to bring home the domestic support? Is he going to provide the needs of the family in a sense that things are going to be taken care of? Or is there insecurity in that way? And the last is family commitment. If we're going to have kids, if we're going to have a home, if I'm going to be here as a support, am I going to sense that, that my husband uh, loves family life and is committed to all of us? So affection, conversation, honesty, and openness financial security, and family commitment. And again, I don't know, I've never been a lady, never been a wife, but the wives that I've talked to have said, that's a pretty solid list. That even looking at the needs that are on the list for the husband, that none of those are as appealing as the five needs that are listed there. And even thinking beyond that, well, there's other things that I could think about, but I can't think of any that would replace those needs that are there. That, that these are the things that God put within a man to want in the relationship. These are the things that God designed a woman to desire within the relationship. Well, listen, as I've got, I've had the opportunity to talk with a lot of couples along the way. If you start talking to couples about this list, you'll find that if there's hurt and heartache in the marriage, because one of those needs is not being met for both sides, you'll find more often than not that there's a connection there they would have never expected in in this way, that they're having the you hug me mentality that you'll have a husband who is desperately desiring to have more sexual fulfillment in the marriage relationship, but because he handles the finances so poorly and they're so insecure in their money, she disrespects him and has no desire for the sexual relationship with him. It's not that they would word it this way, but, but she's saying, you get your act together. You hug me. You provide for me in the way that I'm supposed to, and then I'd be willing to hug you. And they can have the, well, if you do this, I would do that. And if you would do this, I would do that. And it can be so easy for a husband and wife to get settled into a rut of not providing each other's needs and refusing to do so because they say, well, she's not willing to do that or he's not willing to do this. So why should I have to do the other in return? But what they're condemning themselves to do, listen, is they're condemning themselves to do a marriage relationship that just looks like this. They coexist, they have the same address, they pay bills, they raise kids, but they do not get to enjoy 
the relationship that God intended for them to have. They coexist in the same household. It is not God's design for marriage. Listen, I'm sincerely, honestly, I'm burdened about that because I would suggest that there are many good Christian people who would never completely reverse God's process, maybe, and wouldn't get a divorce or completely walk away from home life, but they exist like this because they've gotten into a a you-hug-me rut and said, I'm not willing to give these things up and I'm not willing to change my providing of this need for you. And they dare each other. It's like, you do this and I do that. And they just settle to have a relationship where, yeah, they live together and yeah, they go through life together, but they don't enjoy all of the benefits that God designed a marriage to have because they're not willing to let go of their needs and say, I'm going to pay attention to the needs of my spouse. I'm going to hug them whether they ever hug me or not. I'm going to hug them whether they ever hug me or not. I'm going to meet their needs whether they ever meet my needs or not. And don't understand that it's that willingness to provide for the needs of the other, regardless of what they receive in return, that allows God to work in that spouse and to cause them to want to to provide that cleaving in return. Okay? So now let's talk about the last step. And don't be nervous. This really legitimately is the very shortest step. Okay? So it says, Therefore shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. They shall be one flesh. Two shall be one flesh. Now, when Moses says this, they shall be one flesh, he is talking about the sexual relationship. He's talking about that two fleshes become one flesh. That's the idea. That they will leave and cleave and weave, interweave in a marriage relationship. That's God's intent. That's God's design. And there's no reason to avoid that or be awkward about that. In fact, it just makes all the sense in the world that if you have two individuals who are willing to leave whatever it was that they were previously devoting their lives to, they leave that and they begin to care for and to meet the needs of the other person physically, emotionally, and in every way, then there is going to be that desire for the sexual relationship. It's going to be there. That will just happen automatically. But I would suggest to you that in the same way, when he's saying, therefore shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife, he's talking physically, but he's talking about so much more than the physical relationship. The same is true when it's referring to, they shall be one flesh. He's, he's talking about an interwoven life. One of my favorite things to observe, honestly, before the Lord, one of my favorite things to observe is longtime married couples who have done things God's way. Isn't that the coolest thing to interact with people who've been married, you know, 50, 60, 70 years? And we're blessed to have a lot of those kinds of of couples at at Southwest. To me, it's so cool. Have you noticed that old people married together, they start to look like each other? It's kind of weird, isn't it? I mean, like, how does that happen exactly? But they've been together for so long, and you can just watch them. They'll be standing in different places in a room. And they, they don't even have to say a word. Something will happen. They'll catch each other's eye contact. And each one knows exactly what the other one is thinking. And nobody said a word. They just get each other. They, they understand what the other one is thinking through years uh, of living and thinking alongside each other and thinking together. And, and, and then think about it on a daily basis that he gets up in the morning and he starts the coffee pot so that she can drink coffee while she has her devotions. And while she's having her devotions, then he gets into the shower to start getting ready for the day. And while he's in the shower, she irons his shirt that he puts on to go to work to provide money so that she can go buy groceries to make him dinner 
so that they can have a romantic evening together with flowers that he brought for her. And, and what is that? But an interwoven life where that they have left everything else, cleaved to each other, and now they live an interwoven life where that as you look at them, it's almost hard to see where one ends and the other begins. It's a beautiful thing. And it's the building and it's the intent that God had for marriage. It's, hey, listen, two are better than one. But the best form of two are better than one is when two become one. Did you catch that? That's what ties in from all the way what we said at the beginning. That two are better than one, but the best form of two are better than one is when two become one. And you can watch a marriage relationship where God's done a beautiful work and you look at that and say, I don't know where he ends and where she begins because God put that marriage together. In fact, that's what you got to look at. How, if, if weave is the last step, how are we supposed to, how are we supposed to do that? We'll, we'll look again at the verse, Genesis 2.24. Therefore shall a man leave father and mother, strong action word, and shall cleave unto his wife, strong action word, and they shall be one flesh. Passive. It's something that just happens. Now, again, we talked about that physically. If you've got two people who leave everything else and they love on each other, then that desire for the sexual relationship is going to be there. But it's broader than that, and it's bigger than that. What, what's being communicated here is that if you'll have a husband and wife who will leave and cleave to each other, then God will bless them with that interwoven life that Jesus added to in the New Testament and said, what God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. If, if God joins it together, if they leave and if they cleave, the interweaving is something that you can't just make happen. It's something that happens as you leave and cleave. The more that you leave, the more that you cleave, the more that that relationship is going to be interwoven together and the difficulties and struggles and trials of life, heart, heartache, pains, problems that you go through are not going to be able to rip that marriage apart because they are so interwoven to each other. And that happens not because they say, oh, I want to have this interwoven marriage and we're going to have that kind of marriage. We watch people have after 60 years and 70 years, we're going to have that kind of marriage. We're going to make it happen. We're we're going to jump straight to weave and it's going to be awesome. It doesn't work that way. It's that we could say, oh, God's blueprint for marriage is so difficult. It's this big, enormous three-step process. No, it really isn't. It's not really a three-step us process. It's a two-step us and a one-step God process.